has a lot of nostalgic and sentimental value to me. It's the first Zichah I believe that I ever gave in Neve about 20 years ago when I first came. There's a very big misunderstanding about the mitzvah of Sfiris Omer. Counting the Omer, many people, when you ask them, they think it's some sort of commemoration for the Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva, who passed away during this time period. It's true, of course, that we, we mourn their passing. We do some sort of mourning. But there's a certain technicality here, technical problem. The mitzvah of was is written in the Torah, in Parshas Emor. This week's Parsha, as a matter of fact. And that mitzvah was given way before Rabbi Akiva's Talmidim, or Rabbi Akiva for that matter, were in this world. Obviously, the mitzvah of Sfiris Ha'ayma originally had nothing to do with Rabbi Akiva's Talmidim. There is, of course, a connection why they specifically died during specifically this time period between Pesach and Shavuos, but that's a separate sikha. Tonight I hope to discuss and get an idea what is the mitzvah of Sfiris HaOmer. First of all, we have to know what is the Omer. The Omer in the Sefer HaChinuch and Mitzvah 302, he explains... On the second day of Pesach, right after the first day of Chalamoe, in Eretzisel, they didn't have two days Yom. On the 16th of Nisan, the 15th was Pesach. On the 16th, they were commanded to bring a certain amount of barley as a carbon. The amount of barley was called an Omer. It's a certain amount, about three pounds, let's say. This was brought to show that we acknowledge all our sustenance which comes the harvest time is coming from the Rebbein this is the first thing this is what's called the Karban HaOmer at the same time that the Karban HaOmer was brought which is the second day of Pesach there's a separate mitzvah in mitzvah 306 the Chinuch again brings the mitzvah of counting the Omer what is counting the Omer it's a countdown we count the days starting with the second day of Pesach which is the first day that the Omer was brought and you count 49 days and this countdown represents the, the end of the countdown is Shuvos, Kabbalah Satayra, when we receive the Torah. And you make a count. Why? The Sefer HaKinuch says so beautifully. Because the person has to understand the main purpose of the world was to do Torah and mitzvahs. In loy brisi, yoimam v'loilo, chuko shamayim v'oretz loy samti. If not for those that learn Torah, there would not be a world. As a matter of fact, 
It says, Yom Hashishi, on the sixth day of creation, it uses an extra hey on all the other days. It says Yom Echad, Yom Sheni. doesn't say Hashini. All of a sudden, on the sixth day, on Friday, it says Yom Hashishi. And Rachi explains there from the Chazal, what's the sixth day? The world was waiting, was given on trust. It was waiting for the sixth day of Sivan, which is Shavuot, when we received the Torah. And Hashem says, if Klai Yisrael will accept the Torah, then fine. But if not, then all of this world will go back to nothing. Torah is what keeps the world going. And the Sefer HaChinuch explains, the main purpose of Yetzirah Mitzrayim was not just for freedom to be liberated. The main purpose was to receive the Torah on Harsinai 49 days later. That's the real freedom that we speak about. People always quote the Pasuk, Shalak Ami, let my people go. Take a look in the back of a 10 shekel note, you'll see that there also. But they leave out the main word, the last word in the Apostle. So they may serve me on our Sinai. That was the real freedom, becoming Abde Hashem. But that's a separate Sicha. And when we count, he explains, he compares it to an Ebed who's longing and yearning for the day that he will be liberated. And he knows that on a certain day he's going to be liberated. He starts counting the days to show his anticipation for that great moment. And that's why we count the days. Because to show our anticipation for Kabbalah Satira, which we're going to receive 49 days later. We could really relate to this Especially now, we're counting the days. All of us know the big vacation is coming, right? We're like slaves being liberated. I know guys in September, they're already counting the days till June. We can understand very well this great feeling. And when we count every day, today is the second day of the Omer. It doesn't mean you don't bring the Omer more than once. They only brought it on the second day of Pesach. But we use that as a base. And we say today, the second day after the Omer, the third day after the Omer was brought, and so on. The Sefer Kinnah goes into, why don't you start counting from the first day of Pesach? Why, and why do you use the Omer as your base? And why don't you count down, not up, 49, 48? That, uh, you look on the Sefer of Mitzvah, Shinvah, 306. Now that we understand that the main purpose of leaving Mitzrayim was for Kabbalah Torah, this also answers an obvious question that many of us have had about Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The Seder, a celebration of freedom. What place is there for a Seder or was there during the Inquisition? during the Holocaust, during the Crusades, where they risked their lives to make the Pesach Seder. 
on the ground. They hid. Doesn't it seem a little contradictory, Rabbi? They're celebrating a freedom that doesn't exist. What's the purpose of the celebration? So there's a beautiful marshal in the Haggadah treasury, I believe from the Divrei Shoal, he brings down a marshal of a poor fellow. Poor fellow, never had any money. One day, he strikes it rich. He wins the lottery. He starts giving tzedakah. He gets a beautiful house. And he hires Rabbeim to teach him Tyra. He never understood anything. He never had the money. But now that he had the money, he was able to hire the Rabbeim. And he became his own Tamil Chacham by himself. He himself became a Tamil Chacham. And every year on the anniversary of the day that he won this great lottery, he made a special party and he thanked the Rabbanish Olam for his great fortune. But one year, the wheels of misfortune turned. The Rabbanish Olam saw fit for whatever reason and this fellow lost all of his money. He made some bad investments and again, he returned to the same poverty that he had experienced all of his life. And everybody thought this year, there's nothing to talk about, there's not going to be any party, what's there to celebrate? Nevertheless, he did make a party. Maybe not as lavish as he was used to. But he got up and he thanked the Rebani Shalom, and everyone looked at him, what, what are you, what's there to celebrate? You don't have your wealth anymore, it's all gone. He says, you guys are making a mistake. My main victory, the main thing that I gained was not the monetary wealth. That, you're right, that could be gone tomorrow. The main thing that I got out of this whole business was the wisdom and the Torah that I learned. And that no one can take away from me. And that's the real reason to celebrate. Now we understand the Pesach Seder is not just celebrating a physical freedom. You're right, if it's just a physical freedom, so we don't have this physical freedom anymore. Especially at the times of the Holocaust and the Inquisition, what were they to celebrate? But they understood from generation to generation, the main purpose of Yetzirah Mitzrayim was not the physical freedom, but it was the spiritual freedom. The real freedom. As it says, the only power to which man should aspire is that which he exercises over himself. True power is knowing that you can do something, but you don't. That's real freedom. Not to be able to do whatever you want. You heard all the on that. But you're in control of the matter. True freedom is not being able to do what you want, but being able to do what you know that you should do. As hard as it is, you have self-discipline. You control yourself. You don't let the Yetzirah control you. That's true freedom. And that they can't take away. You read the stories in the Holocaust. The unconquerable spirit. Some of the things that you learn from the Holocaust is the freedom that they had. Now, that we are beginning to understand that Sviris HaOmer is 
accounting and showing an anticipation, a countdown that we can't wait till Kabbalah's Atayra. It's a bit contradictory if we count Sphira. And then when it comes to learning, where are we? We count Sphira to show we can't wait to learn Torah. Yeah, I'll wait till Shmuel. What do you mean? We have the Torah now. Of course, on Shmuel, there's another giving of the Torah that happens every year. We'll talk about that. I'm not saying that if we're not going to learn, we shouldn't count Sphira. I'm just saying we should realize, obviously, when we count the Sphira, we should remind ourselves what we're doing. And we're asking Hashem, we can't wait for Torah, let's do something about it. Let's go to sleep on time so we can get up and tackle learn Torah. There's a saying that people say, it's common, we hear it all the time. Rabbi, I learned enough, I was here for a year or two, whatever. I got to get on with life. I got to go into the real world, Rabbi. You know, learning, nice, nice thing. Got to get on with life. Again, people don't realize. Either they don't daven, or they don't know what they're saying. Every night, we daven in Mary right before Kriyashma. They make a song out of it. Talking about the Torah. This is our the days of our life. This is our life. We sing it. We say it. And then on the other hand, we say, got to get on with life. Torah is not life. The Gemara and Marcus, some of you may have seen him in it. Marcus of Yud said the beautiful point. The Gemara says, a person who killed by accident has to go to Ari Miklot. So they learn out that you have to make the Ari Miklot in such a way that he could live there. You have to make it so that he can get sustenance. There should be stores or whatever. There are certain things that you're not allowed to have there. Certain things that you must have there. Where do you learn this out? Because it says, V'nos el echad ha'arem He has to live there. You have to make it livable. And then the Gemara adds the punchline. Talmud Shagora. If a Talmud of a Rebbe, ends up in Ari Miklot, you send the Rebbe there. Why? What did the Rebbe do? From the same person. You have to make it livable. He has to live there. A Talmud without a Rebbe is not a life. It's not a life. That's not Chayim. You got to get on with life. This is life. This teaches you how to enjoy life. That's a separate Sicha. Forget Olam Haba goes without saying. But Olam Hazer, you learn how to be a mensch. You learn how to control your desires. You won't let your desires control you. It's a whole different world. Of course, making a living is important, Rabbi. I'm not minimizing the fact we have to go out, you've got to make a living. But we've got to get our priorities straight. I give an example. A fellow had to go to Washington, D.C. He was chosen to go to speak to the President of the United States about a very important issue on, on Jewish, a Jewish issue. So we had the whole itinerary. And you take a look at it and there's something funny there. 
He has preparation for speaking with the president. 15 minutes. Okay? Dinner, lunch, and breakfast, food, three hours. What's going on? Rabbi, I gotta eat, you know. I'm not minimizing the fact that you need to eat, you need your kayak. But your priorities are warped. You're not going there looking for food, you're going there to talk to the president. You should put three hours for the president, or maybe an hour for food, whatever it is. But how can it be for the main purpose? You only allot 15 minutes? Obviously, you're missing something that you don't realize your priorities. You got them all topsy turvy. In this world, our main priority is Torah and mitzvahs. Our body got to make a living. I'm not minimizing that. But where's our priorities? A whole day making a living, and that's the real life. That's getting on with life, and that's the real world. Torah a make believe one. We got our priorities all mixed up. We also have to understand, Rabbi Sadi, the tremendous difference between Torah and wisdom. Torah is not just another subject. There's a famous story with the great philosopher Aristotle. There's no question, even the Rambam says, Aristotle was a tremendous genius, big philosopher. Yet they once found Aristotle doing an immoral act. And they asked him, how can this be? How could the great philosopher such as you go and do such an immoral act? So he got up there and he gave him a whole philosophical speech. He says, when I'm standing in the university at the podium wearing my philosophical frock, giving you a philosophical lecture, then I'm Aristotle the philosopher. But when I walk down, and I take off my frock and I hang it up, and I walk out into the street, I'm no longer Aristotle. And I'm a human being, I'm an animal like anybody else. One thing has no, nothing to do with the other. Philosophy is a nice thing, but it doesn't mean that it has to change my way of living. It doesn't mean that it dictates the way I live. I live like anybody else. Now I'm not Aristotle. When I'm in the street, I'm somebody else. And if you think that's a little outdated, there's a more recent episode like this. It's brought down, I, I saw it in Rabbi Left Sefer on Chumash. There was a certain college professor, I think in Columbia University, Bertrand Russell, who taught ethics, maybe Pikayavos, I don't know, whatever he taught, ethics. And they caught him doing something, I don't know if they caught him, but uh, his whole life was basically not ethical. And they asked him the same question. How? Teaching ethics, how can you live this way? He says, you don't have to be a triangle to teach geometry. You don't have to be ethical to teach ethics. That's the sheet of wisdom. Wisdom is not something that changes the person and dictates how he should live. Wisdom is a nice thing to talk about, but it doesn't dictate what kind of a life you'll live. of Dallas. Tyre is not that way. It's not supposed to be that way. And I stress that. 
We'll soon see what Torah is supposed to be. But many people will say, I know many people in Torah who don't act this way. You're right. They're not acting the proper way. We have to know what Torah is supposed to be. And those who don't act the way the Torah tells us to act are just making a chil Hashem. They're misrepresenting Torah. People get a bad taste of what Torah is. Look what that rabbi did and he beat me up and he did this. They're not acting the proper way. What is Torah? It's not Lahabdullah subject. It's not a garment that you put on the base medrash and when you walk out you take it off. It makes and teaches a person how to act in life, how to enjoy life, how to act between man and man, between man and God. A person who learns well on the base medrash and when he goes down into the dining room he acts like an animal and you approach him. You're such a fine learner. How can you act this way? He can't answer. What one do you do with the other? I'm not in the base medrash now. That's Aristotle's answer. That's wisdom. Torah is not a garment that we take off. Torah transforms a person. That's why the label he always brings down, Rabbi Shalom Shadron, Zechatanach explains the concept which we throw around here. Ben Torah! He says you learn other subjects, you're not called a Ben Geometry. Ben Philosophy. What is Ben Torah? The answer is as I just stated. Because all other subjects don't create you. They don't make you into a different person. No steerer. You can talk philosophy and in the street you can be an animal. You can teach ethics and go out and be unethical. No steerer. No contradiction. Tyra is not meant to be that way. Or Ben Tyra, you should know, my Rebbe used to teach us, doesn't necessarily mean you think, oh, that's a guy learning in coil all day. Ben Tyra is a way of acting. Whatever you do in life, there are B'nai Tyra who learn, and there are B'nai Torah who work in your actions, how you act and work, your honesty, your bedside manner if you're a doctor, how you deal with people. You could show, you could be a Ben Tyra, and you have to know that. You're a Ben Tyra either way, if you allow the Tyra to penetrate. And as I said before, don't be turned off by so-called rabbis or people with big beard and payers who have, you've had bad dealings with and they, get, they turn you off from Judaism. That's not what Torah is. You're right. That's a chorosha. It's unfortunate. We have to see what does the Torah expect the Jew and fine, there are plenty of people you look around and you'll see that act the way a Jew should act. You open up a love your neighbor. That book I always mention is one of the best books out. It shows you what a Jew is supposed to be like. Unfortunately, it's hard to find examples. So what? You be the example. You show the people. You give the Rabbani Shalom Nachas. You be the example. There was an article. I read in the Reader Digest also it gets across a whole different understanding of what a, a difference between a Jew and a guy. There was an article about a fellow from India by a tremendous memory. He memorized numbers. 
So it said in the article, at first, they used to memorize the bus schedules, train schedules. Then it said he saw that nothing was to be gained with this kind of show. Meaning, I say in parentheses, he didn't get enough covered. Wasn't appreciated. So he figured out. He called up the Guinness Book of World Records. And he asked them, what should he work on? What record can he work on with his memory and numbers? They said, you know, it's a very important record. There's a formula in geometry and numbers and circles called pi. Pi is basically when you have a diameter in a circle. I need the blackboard here, right? A diameter in a circle, that's the line down the middle, if you've forgotten a little high school. So there's a certain proportion, once you know the diameter, you know the circumference is a certain amount times the diameter, which is 22 over 7. That's in, de- in, in fractions. But once you convert that to decimals, it's 3.14, and it keeps going forever. It's not a rational number, it just keeps going. You memorize that decimal formula as many places as you can memorize. And he did, I don't remember the number, 20,000 places, right? I could could recite it for you now, but I know you you don't know it anyway, so you won't know that I'm making it up. But the truth is, it took him, I think, 45 minutes in front of the judges with their computers, and he made a record. I think later somebody broke his record. I don't know, he's in bad shape. The bottom line was, they asked him, they asked him, Kasha, why would anyone want to memorize 20,000 numbers of a formula that, you know, what are you going to use it for? To buy something in the Marcola? What do you need it for? He said it's for the challenge. And again, I interpret for the covered. I got no covered memorizing bus schedules. But now my name will be in the Guinness Book of World Records for memorizing some stupid formula. Your verdict. This is the Gaish attitude. And love your neighbor. He brings a beautiful story about Rabbi Leo Kletzkin, who also had a phenomenal memory. What did he do with his memory? It says like this. He used his memory. There's a mitzvah in the Torah of not giving bad advice, which of course works the other way also. It's a mitzvah of giving good advice. So he used his memory to assist others by memorizing the schedules of trains and ships all over the world. This way he could aid people who planned trips, even though he himself never traveled. And Murray did a lesson. What did the Jew do with his talent? He doesn't think, oh, how am I going to get in the Book of World Records? He thinks of one thing, how will I help somebody else? That's the main thing. That's Tyra, and that's Lahabal wisdom. Wisdom of selfishness. Don't care about the other guy. And again I stress, unfortunately you're right. I know you're thinking, I know people, he's in Tyra and he's a rabbi, and he doesn't give a damn about anyone else. You may be right, unfortunately there are misrepresentation all over. We have to know what the Torah really teaches us. And not judge the Torah by the false representatives.
We all get a chant, Rabbi Sam. When we learn Torah and do mitzvahs, we all get the chant like a guy goes into the army and he gets a chance to put what he knows into the test. They put him on an obstacle course. That's what Ben Azmanim is all about. That's what going into town is sometimes. It's a test. You have a chance to act like a true Torah representative, make a Kiddush Hashem, or Chatz the opposite. Kabbalah Tzatayat coming up on Shavuos. You have to realize, every year there's a new Kabbalah Tzatayat. That's a separate Sicha. It's not just a commemoration of what took place a few thousand years ago. It actually occurs. God is there giving us the Torah. And as my Rabbi said, how much are we going to get? He said, it's like a guy who's giving out free lemonade. How much are you going to take? It depends what kind of receptacle you come with. You come with a cup, you'll get a cup. You come with a pitcher, you'll get a pitcher. A barrel. There's plenty to give out. Whatever you come with, that's what you're going to get. On Shavuos, we're going to come. What, is, how do we, what kind of receptacle is depending on what we do now? If we show the Rabbi Shalom that we have, we want to get Torah. We do. We would like to like to get Torah. Maybe even one Thursday night we won't go into town. Or we'll come back early just to learn Torah to show that we do give it a Hashivas. That's the kind of receptacle we're going to come with and that's how much Torah we'll get. It all depends on us. There's a beautiful story in the American literature books. Maybe some of you remember it. It's called The Necklace. They guard the Maupassant, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. It's a story about a woman who needed a necklace for a party. And she went to her neighbor and she borrowed her beautiful pearl necklace. She went to the party, she enjoyed it, everybody complimented her on the necklace. And when she came home, she was horrified because she saw that the necklace was no longer there. She tried to find it, it was gone, lost. She was too embarrassed to approach her neighbor and tell her that she lost the necklace. So she came upon an idea. She went into a jewelry store. She saw the same necklace, almost the same, with a hefty price, about $100,000. But she had no choice. She sold her house. She went to work. She borrowed money. She returned that necklace the next day. She didn't utter a word to her neighbor that it was really lost and I bought a new one. She moved away. Ten years later, her old neighbor who lent her the necklace happened to meet her in the street and walked right by. She didn't even recognize her. So she stopped her old neighbor. And her old neighbor said, oh, it's you, I didn't recognize you, what happened to you? The ten years, you've aged so much. So she said, well, I may as well tell you the truth. It has something to do with you. I Me, mean, what do I do? He says, you remember, try to remember, ten years ago, you lent me this necklace for the party. She says, yeah, you gave it back to me the next day. No, you're mistaken. I lost your necklace. And I had to spend $100,000 to buy a new one. And that's why I had to move and I had to go to work and so on and so forth. And the woman, the neighbor, when she heard this, she almost fainted. She turned white. She says, oh my, that necklace wasn't real. 
It was imitation jewelry. It was worth maybe $10. And that's the end of the story. I don't know if the author had this in mind, but there's a tremendous lesson to learn from that story. A person could live his whole life believing that he had something authentic. And his whole life is dictated by what he thinks is authentic happiness and authentic Judaism or authentic whatever, fun. His whole life can live, be lived on a false impression. And maybe if he's lucky, he'll wake up at one point and realize, this is not authentic, it's imitation. Come, we'll show you what authenticity really is. We'll show you what real happiness really is. And I always add to this story, another story that I heard from Rabbi Josh Silverman, Zechatzag Lebracha. It's a whole story how I heard that story. I heard this story over 30 years ago. I had a Pirchei Malava Malk, and I had the privilege of meeting Rabbi Silverman a few years ago. And I would always say over this story, and I asked him, I said, I want to make sure I'm saying over the story correctly. And I repeated the story to him, he said, yeah, that's the story. And I think this story will teach us an even more important lesson. There's a story again of a rabbi with a Talmud. The rabbi was giving us the to the Talmud about how precious Torah is. You call him Ipaninim. The Chazal teaches to said in the Apostle, Torah is more important than gold and silver. And the Talmud was very impressed and he went out, Mamish, ah, Torah, it's more important than gold and silver. Yavali. He gets hungry, goes into a restaurant, has a nice meal. He's looking for his American Express card or a checkbook and he didn't listen to the commercial. He left home without it. He didn't have it. He has no money, no checks. How's he going to pay? Came up with an idea. He goes over to the proprietor, right? Jewish fellow. He said, I don't have money or a check or a credit card, but I have something for you that's worth more than gold and silver. Ooh, what do you got? Diamond? Well, I have a divine Torah to tell you. Rabbi Price's Sicha, whatever. The guy looked at him like he's crazy. He said, I can't pay the rent with a divine Torah. Go in there and wash the dishes or something. The guy gets disillusioned. He comes out of there. He's broken. Comes back to his rabbi. Rabbi, rabbi, you taught me Torah is more important than gold and silver. What, what's its worth? If I can't even buy a, a meal with it, a piece of food. The rabbi calmed him down. He says, come, I want to show you something. He took him over to the stable where the rabbi had a horse. He told the Talmud, I want you to go inside and ask my wife for her diamond necklace. He comes out with the diamond necklace. Put it down in front of the horse. Puts it down in front of the horse. The horse tries to bite it, nibble it. Doesn't taste too good. Walks away. Now the Rebbe said, take a bale of hay and put it down in front of the horse and see what happens. Naturally, the horse gobbled it up, ate it up like a horse and a mechai. So the Rebbe asked the Talmud, so tell me, what's worth more, a diamond necklace or a bale of hay? To a horse who doesn't understand what a diamond necklace is, who has no use for a diamond necklace, then hay is more important than a diamond necklace. You have to realize, he told this Talmud, 
Don't expect everybody out there to understand the value of Torah. Unfortunately, a lot of them are like this for us. But you have to understand the value of Torah. And as I said before in the other story, it may be tragic to go through life thinking you have something authentic and then finding out that it's a hoax, it's a dream. It's a hallucination, it's not true, it's a tremendous tragedy, but what may be even a greater tragedy is to have what's authentic and not realize it. You're sitting on it, you have it in your hands, and you don't realize it's worth, you throw it out, you think it's a piece of junk. That's probably even a bigger tragedy. And I'll end off with a beautiful story from a Pesach Krohn. Pesach Krohn tells a story about Rosh Zalman Arbach, when he was a young fellow, and his parents had just moved into a new house. In this new house, there was somebody else living there at the time, in one of the rooms. It was a young, irreligious pioneer. And they asked Rebetzin Auerbach, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Auerbach's mother, permission to remain there for a week or two until they moved into their new apartment. So Rabbi Shlomo Zalman's mother made an agreement, no problem, but one condition. I beg of you, don't desecrate the Shabbos. They weren't religious people, these pioneers, but naturally they agreed, right? They're doing them a favor, allowing them to stay there. They won't desecrate the Shabbos. Fine. The first Shabbos, the door was open. And Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Auerbach's mother, to her horror, saw that the guy was writing a letter on Shabbos. She was horrified. The guy gave his word that he wouldn't desecrate the Shabbos. So she sent her son, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman, he was a little kid then, to ask him about it. So he comes in and says, good Shabbos, good Shabbos. And then he brings up the point that, you know, what about the deal? And the guy said, oh my, this is Chol Shabbos. This is desecration of the Shabbos. I didn't know, I'm sorry. I thought writing in a car or using machinery, I didn't know that writing was desecrating the Shabbos, but of course now that you told me, I'll stop immediately. Then the pioneer turned to Reb Shlomo Zalman and he said, you know, I bet you you think that I don't believe in God. But I want you to know something. I believe in God just as much as you. So Reb Shlomo Zalman was taken aback. He says, excuse me, if that's so, then how is it that you don't even know that writing is desecrating the Shabbos? So the pioneer said, that's a long story, but if you want to hear it, then let's go for a walk. So Rabbi Shlomo Zalman, the young Shlomo Zalman, went with this pioneer, and they took a walk in the forest. And the pioneer said the following story. I was a young man attending school in Russia when I was drafted into the army. World War I broke out. We were shooting the enemy and hiding in the foxholes with several ceasefires to remove the fallen soldiers from the field. We were all exhausted, but I noticed that next to me there was a young religious Jew who would be saying to Hillam and praying with great intensity. 
when they were finished, these Jews, I saw that they were comforted. And they had confidence in Hashem. I didn't have that comfort. And I needed it very much. I was angry at my parents every time I saw these young Jews. Because they never taught me anything about Yiddishkeit. The only thing I knew about Yiddishkeit was that my grandmother lit candles on Friday night. Finally, one day when I was in the foxhole, I cried out, God, you know it's not my fault that I don't know how to approach you. My father didn't teach me anything, and it's not my fault that I don't know how to be a good Jew. I am facing the enemy trying to stay alive. I don't know them. They don't know me. I don't want to kill anyone. If a bullet hits my hand so I can no longer shoot, then it will be a sign from you, God, that you are indeed here, even on this battlefield. I finished my prayer, and all was quiet. A few minutes later, the sound of a single bullet shattered the silence, and it hit my finger. The pioneer then showed Bipshlam his finger, which had become useless since that time. My gun fell from my hand and I passed out from excruciating pain. I awoke in a military, in a military hospital and I promised myself that as soon as the war was over, I would find someone who could teach me as much as possible about Judaism. I was never sent back to the front. When I came home, I decided to first go back to school for three months and get a diploma in agriculture. After learning a trade, I would then go to a yeshiva and learn about Yiddishkeit. Three months later, my head was clear and I tried to learn. Logic dictated that I should learn with intensity. But now, it was already three months after my original resolve. My heart just wasn't in it anymore. I thought I could continue learning, but it just didn't go. If I would have started three months earlier, maybe I would be a different person today. The first Yom Kippur I tried to dominate and show my Maksa, I became frustrated with my inability to read Hebrew. And the next Yom Kippur, I didn't bother to go to shul anymore. Had I started learning about Yiddishkeit right after I came out of the army, while the fire of the inspiration was still within me, perhaps today, I would have known that writing is forbidden on Shabbos. They both walked back in silence. But when Rav Zalman got home, he told his mother the story, and then he cried. Clown Yisrael have lost a golden neshama, a golden soul, only because a young man had not seized the moment. And this is the advice that I end off with, Rabbi Sai. Whatever inspiration I hope that maybe has come about, we can't put it off. We have to put it into immediate action. Make up your mind now. Make a seder. Go to sleep on time. Get up on time. Keep, as Rabbi Marcus said, there's so much, so little time left. And we have to follow the advice that we used to hear from Rabbi Manuel He would quote a barrel of wine. Don't just count the days. Let's make the days count. And we'll be zeichel to a true Kabbalah satira and live a better life in this world. I'd like